Hello, my friends, and welcome to Refreshingly Honest Christian. My name is David Metcalf. I am your host. And today's episode, we've got a special guest, Tiffany Bloom. She is an author, a speaker, a podcaster, and we just had a really, really great conversation. I'm excited to share it with you. She has a new book coming out called Pray Tell, and it's a really great book. I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed by it. And uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's masterfully done, I have to say. It's called Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up. She did a really great job with it. And as I was reading through, I just felt, man, this is, this is exactly what the podcast needs to hear and for us to talk about. And just so you know, a quick warning about today's episode. Uh, this episode does contain certain descriptions of sexual harassment and assault that may be triggering to some. So just a heads up uh, warning for you there. But it really was a great conversation, and I'm just so honored that Tiffany would come on and, uh, and, and talk about it. So before we get into it, just so you know, we have a Patreon if you'd like to support the podcast. We have several different rewards and tiers available as uh, just a way of saying thanks for being a part of our community and uh, showing support for the show. And if you want to buy us a coffee, you can check out patreon.com slash refreshingly honest Christian. Again, we have multiple different tiers and rewards. One of the things that we're doing right now is we're doing monthly Zoom hangouts. And so once we hit 10 people in there, small but mighty community here, uh, we're going to start doing that. And I'm really excited to do that. I want to, as I always say, make this more of a conversation with you, our listeners. And so go check it out, patreon.com slash refreshingly honest Christian. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Tiffany Bloom. Enjoy. Tiffany Bloom, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, David. I'm so happy to have you. I so a funny story, quick story before we jump right in. But I was I reached out to your publisher and I saw that you have this book coming out. And uh, so, actually, do you mind telling the listeners like you DM'd me and uh, you were like, "Hey, I noticed." <laughs> it was just such a weird. Mo- I'm like, no author has ever reached out. I just thought it was cool. I know, like, I thought it was awesome because I already, I already got your book. I was literally gonna have you on the show, and then you were like, "Hey, we should talk on my on the podcast." So here we are. I don't know. I thought that was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, you came. I was looking for looking for podcasts, and you were one of the top ones that came up when I was looking for podcasts that I thought that would be willing to entertain a nuanced, complex issue that sometimes we step around in faith culture. And I thought, I bet this guy's willing to have a tough conversation. Yeah, uh, hopefully. Hopefully I can live up to the challenge. (laughs) But I just thought it was so awesome. And then I sent you a picture. I'm like, way ahead of you, friend. I already... I know, I couldn't believe it. That's the first time that's happened. (laughs) But but yeah, no, it's awesome. So, um, So you're an author, you're a speaker, you're a podcaster. And you wrote this book called Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up, which I'd love to talk about today. But before we do, why don't we, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here to where you are now, what led to this book? 
Yeah. So I am in the Seattle area. I'm married. I have two kids, two boys, 10 and six. And I always knew I wanted to go into into the nonprofit service space, serving people, serving men and women, serving those on the margins. And I am a a three on the Enneagram type A, achieve, get it done, go after what you're dreaming about type of gal. And so I pursued um, nonprofit work. And I loved my job, David. I was able to serve men and women who were coming out of recovery in the AIDS community, DSHS, military families. I I found a role that kind of was able to use all of my interests in just meeting people's needs and finding creative ways to do so. And all that was beautiful until I realized that even when you play by the rules in faith culture, you won't always be honored and not mm. everyone else's. And you realize you're like, wow, we're, we're being graded on a curve here. Mm. So I was the girl who grew up in youth ministry, like lettered in youth group, David. Okay. I found Jesus young and he became my whole thing. <laughs> I love it. Had a bit of a bit of a rocky home life. So Jesus truly was, he, he was everything. I didn't have a fallback. I didn't have anything else to, to be my saving grace. Mm. And again, I'm, I'm a rule follower. So when I found myself in a situation where I had no choice but to speak truth to power and tell an unpopular truth. Mm. I assumed I would be heard. I assumed that those in the system I was in would listen. I assumed that I'd be heard and seen as a credible witness to misconduct. Mm. And nothing could have been further from the truth. I discovered that in the system I was in and in every system we're in, whether it's faith system, whether it's work, whether it's home, whether it's play, wherever you work or worship, I discovered that we have these systems that on paper look like we value women, look like we value those who are oppressed. But when it be, when it comes the powerful to the powerless, when it's, yeah, the powerful versus the powerless, mm. women aren't always heard. And more than that, they're subjugated, they're silenced, they're slandered. And so I learned the hard way that women can be disposable and men are very indispensable. And again, I was in a system that valued honor and integrity and equality. So it was a it was two to the chest to find out that that wasn't the case in practice. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, I would I would imagine a huge disappointment, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And really just the the professional, financial, societal ramifications of speaking up mm. because for me in my situation, David, I was the bystander. I was witnessing something happening to somebody else. And so we all find ourselves in these ethical dilemmas wherever we work and play, where we're like, should I say something? I see something. Should I say something? Well, it didn't happen to me. I don't want to get involved. Not my circus, not my monkeys. (laughs) And so we kind of step back. And and the reality is we all have a mandate to move this moral arc toward justice. And if we don't do that, we are part of the problem. We're complicit. Yeah. 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 One of my favorite lines in the book, you say, I made excuses until I couldn't for the men in my world, I, mm. until my convictions outweighed my loyalty. And gosh, that right there, I feel like is a huge impetus behind what led to this book. And just spoiler alert for those listening, <laughs> uh, you were taking on the very difficult but very extremely important subject of sexual assault, harassment, and particularly for those are uh, for women, right? And so yeah. First off, the name, Pray Tell. For those who can't see the cover, <laughs> uh, there's an E in there, not an A, like the usual expression, Pray Tell. Could you tell me yeah. about the name of the book? What does it mean to you? 
Oh, I love it. So my husband thought of that. He's so punny. He's so punny all the time. He's like dadjokes.com, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and so I was thinking of titles when I was creating my Brooke proposal and I was like birds of prey and kind of like playing that. He's like, pray tell because pray tell by definition means tell me more. Yeah. So prey, P-R-E-Y is the prey, those who are silenced, hunted, those who are taken advantage of are the ones telling the story. Yeah. So, and hence the, it kind of is just a little bit of foreshadowing. I cover everything from Monica Lewinsky to the gymnast in the Nassar situation to Andy Savage's church. I, I try to give a broad stroke yeah. in every sector of society of prey telling their stories versus the narrative being twisted by white dominant men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the name itself, I love, it's, it's almost like a warning when you prey on women, eventually they'll speak up, oh. like, watch out, men. Like, just, just like, yeah. like a lot of you I didn't think like that. I'm taking that to the bank, David. <laughs> I'm taking that to the bank. That's good stuff right there. Like, I mean, it's because it, it is, I mean, you even talk about in the book and by the way, I love it. I really do. And I'm not just saying that the, it's like, Thank there's you. so many men in the book or you talk about men, like how, how can they get away with it? And it's like, it's because like they do and it's like it's an and it's not until women speak up that they they no longer get away with injustice and they they are held accountable. And so in the book, Pray Tell, you make the argument that the practice of silencing women is not a female issue. It's an everyone issue. Do you think you could speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So as previously mentioned, we create systems where there's hierarchy, there's order, and that's all to ensure that some people stay on the top, some people stay in the middle, some people stay on the bottom. It's a caste system, if you will, and basically every every place that we occupy. And what has happened is when women come forward with something that would jeopardize a man in power, mm. especially if they didn't do anything to deserve it, yeah. that threatens the system. So anyone who's watching this happen, whether you're watching it on CNN or you're seeing it on, you know, your church Facebook group, wherever the case may be, mm. you're watching a misconduct unfold or you're watching a man abuse his power at, at a woman's expense. And you're thinking, how could this happen? Th th this, this is her issue. And in reality, us giving a free pass to men and assuming that they have good intentions and that their accolades are a good defense for what they potentially did is doesn't really hold weight. And we do that is because honestly, we're trying to protect ourselves yeah. because we, we cannot reckon in our mind that if something happened to her, it could happen to us. Hmm. We have to believe that she did something to deserve this or else we're sitting ducks as well. Yeah. So, and, and again, I, I really unpack the psychology of this, of, you know, first impressions, narcissists and men who abuse their power are masters at first impression. And the crazy thing about first impressions is it's extremely difficult to switch your mind of how, how you feel about somebody if they've made a positive first impression. You will mine your psyche looking for reasons to defend and confirm what you already believe about this man. Mm. Because how could a good man who preaches on Sunday or who leads a, a Fortune 500 company and has made a way for women in the workplace, how could he possibly abuse his power? Right. How could he possibly? And the reality is we, we are dual people. We have the capacity for good and to be naughty. And there is room for rebuke. And unfortunately, why I'm saying this is an everyone issue is because 
our complicity is the reason this is still even happening. Our complicity in thinking, you know, we got to turn the other way or this is just how boys are or we've socially found it to be acceptable for men to harass women as young as middle school. We, we have to really flip this narrative on its head. And we've made so much progress, especially in the last 101 years since women have been able to vote. But we have so far to go. In fact, the term sexual harassment wasn't even around till the 70s. Women before that did not have the vernacular to describe their experiences. So seeing that this is an everyone issue is inviting everyone to lend their strength when you see a woman who, when you feel like, hey, something's not right here, something, something's not right, something's happening to her, the way she's being treated at work or at school or you know, in college, uh, at church, looking for those signifiers that show us we have to get engaged. And I get it. We don't want to lose our proximity to power. We don't want to lose our place in the system. We don't want to lose our our reputation thinking like, oh, there's the crusader who's going to stand up for everybody, or they're just looking for trouble, Mm. or they're a gossip, or they're a Jezebel. It's not great. Nobody wants that. We want to be seen as likable. I think our, our desire to be seen as diplomatic and agreeable often outweighs our heart for justice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you talk about what's at stake and you say, unless we pursue the redemptive arc of justice, it will continue uncontested and half the human population, half, <laughs> will suffer under the weight of abuse and violation. I feel like that right there is just, it sums up like how important this subject is. It's like half the population will suffer. Like take that, like really take that serious. And uh, you mentioned how their names make us cringe, if I can name a few. Weinstein, Lauer, O'Reilly, Epstein, and watch out, Christians, I'm coming for you. Hyvels, <laughs> Christ, and yeah. you know, it, and 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 that their actions were made known to the public by brave women who found the courage to tell their story. And the thing that was staggering to me and continues to blow me away is real victims, people who have been abused, are disgraced. Women like it, it like yeah. is that why we like not we is that why women typically like they choose to remain silent is because there's so, there's so much on the line they, they like you see what happens to women when they speak up it's like they their whole lives get ruined because they speak truth to power exactly I mean let's take Dr. Kristen Blasey Ford as an example a respected graduate professor at a leading university speaks up about this horrific experience and she has had to move four times due to death threats. She had to hire personal security on her own dime to ensure that she stays alive. And she never meant to come forward in the way that it all, it all happened. And I, and I detail that a little bit in the book. It was a leaked memo that was supposed to be in Kavanaugh's records as it went before the committee to consider his nomination. We, we, Women don't put themselves in the line of fire. That's not the goal or desire. And sadly, historically, we can look back and see women haven't been heard. I mean, the amount of rape cases that are actually prosecuted is so incredibly low. So you're watching the world around you of women not even being heard. And so then you think, well, what would make me be heard? Why is my story any different? Mm. Why is my story any different? And again, that's why I, I just encourage us all, if we know women who are finding themselves in these uncomfortable situations between a rock and a hard place. We must lend our strength. We must step in because they're, they're, they have so much on the line. And yes, we do too, but we are not emotionally sacrificing our experience again and again and having to retell that story. 
we're, we're standing in the gap. We're holding space in very, very practical ways so they can speak up. Mm, yeah. 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 The interesting take about this book, Tiffany, is that to me, at least it shines somewhat of a faith-based light <laughs> on the, on this Me Too era that we live in. And and what strikes me, like you even just mentioned just a moment ago, does she have a Jezebel spirit? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like there's so much language that even in the church that seems to enable abusers and keeps women silent, yeah. which like even that line, does she have a Jezebel, Jezebel spirit? It sounds like a joke, but like I've heard people talk like that without a shred yeah. of irony. Poor Jezebel, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> <laughs> but oh, that's funny. But you you also go on to say in the book you say we can be seen as opportunistic, unforgiving, another churchy word, unbiblical, mm-hmm. spotlight seeking and vindictive with a vengeance for blood, angry feminists out to win any semblance of power we possibly can as as we crush the patriarchy and ruin a man's life. Gosh, I remember when all these big names in Hollywood were falling. I, I don't know, this was like mm-hmm. a couple of years ago now, I think. 2017. Yeah. yeah. Few years, my bad. And um a friend of mine, she said, just wait till you start hearing stories from the church. Ooh. And in oh, this gal, she like, it was such a haunting line. It, like it was on Facebook. She just, con- I remember being like, what the heck? Like seriously? Like I was at the point, like at that point I was just like, I could not believe all every, all the stuff that was coming out about, you know, certain, some of the names that we even just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And um, that right there. I remember being so grieved by that and I felt for her because I also felt like, what does that mean? Like, what does she know that I don't, you know, and what, so for you, even Tiffany, like what ways have you seen this go wrong in the church? Have we cultivated a system that silences women? Yes. I have a bit of a three-part answer to this. Number one, the Greco-Roman influence in the first century when the church was getting off the ground really permeated principles uh, that were intended to see women as equal. So the early church fathers believed that women were were, were evil and vile and that their bodies represented sin mm. versus, and that they were deformed men, in fact, and that they were the cause of all evil in the world. So you have this beautiful first century church that is getting off the ground with these incredible prophets and apostles and preachers and teachers And then you have the culture that is actually seeping into the church and saying, oh, but women are evil and women are vile and this is what they have done to the world. So that seeped in Mm. to this beautiful, good thing. And and you see, especially during the Reformation, even more so that women women should be quiet and submissive. And if they're not, they're, they're evil and out to get men and at odds with men. And then as men have gained power, this is my second point here, as men have gained power over time, Research shows that as men, as men's platform increase and as they have more access to resources and unlimited power, they see themselves as more sexually attractive and desirable. Mm. And they can often search for affairs and they think they think women want them. Mm. Um, so and that is in every sphere. Again, people are people, right? Whether you're working in government or whether you're working in Hollywood, whether you're working in the church, men are men with a men's brain and they see them. And again, this is anyone in power, but specifically this research was, was around a men's access to power. Mm. And then I think you add to that, we have made narcissism a prerequisite for leadership yeah. and the, the, the qualities that enabled men to have these platforms in the first place, especially in the faith space, goodness and the fruit of the spirit, 
they've shed once they've reached that place of power. I mean, I, I hope this is okay to say, but the recent experience with Carl Lentz, yeah. you, you see this person who had everything going for him, everything going for him, a global audience, a half a million followers on Instagram, people all over the world coming to sit at his feet. And he abused that power. And he, adultery aside, was reportedly outrageously narcissistic. So I think that without these checks and without accountability by those who are propping up this abuser of power, we're going to always be in hot water. This is going to continue to happen. Yeah. And so my, my hope and desire is well before women are taken advantage of and exploited, whether it's their place or their body or their voice or their resources, whatever the case may be, well before that's taken advantage of, we must make men accountable. Yeah. We must have checks and balances in place to ensure they're not playing dirty. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with naming names because I mean that, that example right there, Carl Lentz is a perfect example. And gosh, I don't know if you saw, I think it was, uh, gosh, no, who was it? It was like Joel Houston, his wife, I forget, uh, uh, Esther Houston, Esther. she called, she called him out and I'm like, thank you. Cause I saw yeah. all these, like, and this was before the comments got shut off when he posted about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I mean, that makes waves, you know, like he's a, like, and I know what you mean. Like, you know, Chuck DeGroat, he wrote a book called when narcissism comes mm-hmm. to church. I don't know if you've read that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and you, you talk about narcissism in the book and I'm like, yes, like <laughs> ministry, ministry leaders. And I'm checking myself here too. Cause I'm like, you know, I've been in ministry, but I'm like, it attracts for whatever reason this. And by the way, you mentioned you're a three, I'm a four wing three. So I know all about that performer. Well, I'm a three wing four. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> so anyway, all that to say, so like, I, I absolutely think that it's, it's necessary to call it out when you see it. And and if, if if I may be so bold on my own podcast, I don't know if I could say this, but I'm gonna. So John Christ, like how is that guy still mm-hmm. around doing stuff? Just like I, I that blows me away. Like and I'm and by the way, like I'm you don't you you mentioned his last name at the beginning, and I just I'm like, thank you. Thank you, Tiffany, because I don't <laughs> understand how and like again, going back to this is why I feel like religious language can, and by the way, like, yes, forgiveness is great, yada, yada, yada. But like, it's also, we're, we're, we're enabling terrible, awful behavior. And so I love it yeah. when Esther is like, is like calling it out. I mean, seriously, I love it. Mm-hmm. That like, <laughs> yeah. not just because it's like a, you know, we love the drama, but I just feel like it's necessary to keep, because she, she even said to him, like, you, you were dealt a great hand. You, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like these men, <laughs> like, like, I don't feel any sympathy for you. I'm sorry. Like yeah. you did this. You, yeah. you made this choice. Yeah. So gosh. And we, and, and they're counting on that sympathy. I call it empathy, which is a, wow. a research term by, you know, we we're so quick to offer empathy to a perpetrator more than we are to a victim. Mm. It is proven. Wow. We, especially if they show in, 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 in faith culture, we see this a lot. If they show even a shred of remorse mm. and if, whether it's practiced or whether it's by a PR team that exactly. said it to them, we are willing to give 
empathy because we want things to be right. I think there there's goodness in us that wants goodness. But I want to go back to what you said a minute ago. You said we're so quick to forgive. And I think this is part of the problem, David. Forgiveness biblically doesn't come until after repentance. Yeah. You know, we take King David when he exploited Bathsheba. And that's often compared to workplace misconduct, seeing her from a distance, calling her in, killing her husband. I mean, it's just this gruesome story and taking advantage of her. She didn't have a choice in the matter at all. And then she becomes his wife after her own after her own husband is killed. But we see this pattern. And but for David, we always forget. We always forget. David was called out by a model, modern day whistleblower. Yeah. Nathan called him out. He repented. He admitted to everything. He wept. He lamented. He mourned. He went through this biblical process that we see is a road to reconciliation. And he. He long term, there's a lot he never got back. He did not get everything restored to him. Mm. His son wanted to take him out, you know, like he never had what he originally had ever again. He was never fully restored power. Mm. The, the Lord never allowed that to happen. And we are we want so badly for things to be right that we're willing to overlook necessary steps of redemption. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're so right. That it was it it took somebody calling him out and and that's biblical. Like that was uh, like mm-hmm. that was like a prophetic. Uh, and P- I know pe- people have a lot of issues with the word prophetic, as do I. There's a ton of baggage there. Yeah, but, for sure. But I mean, sometimes prophetic, I think, is just as like. <laughs> I mean, that's what Esther was doing. I think she's like <laughs> she's being she's truth telling, and yeah. yeah, and and actions have consequences, you know. And that Come on now. that is justice. That is just like, and so mm-hmm. yeah, it it's it's right that you know, it shouldn't be completely restored. So gosh, another interesting theme of the book. I mean, we've talked a lot about power. You say, even in your own story, I still held to this conscious and subconscious belief that if I had even a shred of power, it was because someone with privilege, in my case, white male privilege had given it to me. And that kind of dovetails into, in the book, you talk about faux egalitarianism. What is faux egalitarianism? All right. So egalitarianism is believing that men and women are equal. That is both a faith and mainstream term. And faux egalitarianism is on on paper believing that men and women are equal, but in practice, exploiting them, subjugating them, Hmm. calling the shots, a performative nature. Women have a seat at the table, but they better not speak. Women can be on the stage, but they better say exactly what we want. Hmm. Really more, (laughs) they're more of puppets than uh, power players. And and I felt I've fallen prey to this, and you know I'm I'm Indian, so I have been that token brown girl in many places and spaces. Honestly, my whole life, David, mm. and it's 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 both hurtful, harmful, but I'm also an optimist. So I'm like, no, they see that I'm valuable, and I have something to say, yeah. and I have something to add to the conversation, and I can help make good decisions for the whole. And I and I do believe that that is taken into consideration, but at the same time. At the same time, it can so easily be taken advantage of. And I and the, honestly, the Heibel situation is a really good example of that. He was one of the first in the nation for on that mega platform to put women in ministry, to put to allow women to preach. I mean, the evangelical church watched him elevate women to the highest places when he resigned. Well, before he resigned, when he was planning to resign, he left it to a man and a woman to be co-senior pastors. I mean, he was breaking the mold. He was making a way for women across the world just by modeling it in his own system Mm. and his own place. 
So then you find out that he's been exploiting women. And how do you do that? You have them in your inner circle. So faux egalitarianism looks a lot like allowing women to have a, a place of power, but it's not power in practice. It's only on paper. Mm. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, honestly, a lot of what you're describing to me sounds like grooming. <laughs> yes. Oh gosh. Like yeah. it's when a, you know, an abuser gradually gains the trust of an, of a victim. And, and that's, and that's the thing is like, we see it, we see it everywhere. And the way you describe it is just so beautifully told. And you even say, we feel as though if we are going to advance in the world, it will be because of him. Another haunting line, you say, women weigh the odds and count the costs of speaking out. Like when this stuff happens, they choose to remain silent mm -hmm. in order to collect a paycheck, advance their careers, be accepted in their churches engage in opportunities to lead, and truthfully stay in the place they've worked so hard to access. This breaks my heart. It reminds me of Megyn Kelly. Have you seen that movie, Bombshell? Oh uh, my gosh, yes. Okay. Yeah. So this describes it to a T. You say, they know the drill. Look like a 10, be the smartest person in the room, but don't act like it. Keep your fears and nervousness to yourself, be insanely agreeable, laugh on command, and be nice. Gosh. Tiffany! What the hell? <laughs> How did we get here? Yeah. I, I mean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I recently had a conversation with a graduate professor from Baylor who is an expert on medieval history and specifically women's medieval history. And she talked about during the Industrial Revolution, women who were, you know, they had local breweries and they'd feed the community and, and, and serve the community their local beers and they would have little mom and pop shops, uh, little cafes, and they would, they would be such an integral part of their community. They would be leaders in their church. They were teachers. It wasn't this like outlander vibe that we have where they were like all just treated horribly. They had so much more power than we lead on. We just don't have the history books to show, but if you really, you know, you do your research, you find that. And I think honestly, when you, when you look at the industrial revolution and how men who were resourced were able with capitalistic mindsets, be able to just overhaul every sector of society because they, they grouped together, they got their little bro team together and they had means, mm. they were really able to set the standard of who got to play ball, whether it was politics, education, church, I mean, fill in the blank. So I think you look at that over the last 500 years of how men have held the power. And again, the, the power dynamics of class, race, gender, resources, mm. there you go. There's the order. There's the pecking order. So again, I, I also want to celebrate the gains that have been made by women at the hands of men. I, I am who I am. So the most formative mentors in my life have all been men. So I'm not this man hater at all. I think, in fact, David, when, when this, when my whistleblowing experience happened, the first person I called was my youth pastor from high school. Wow. We're still in great contact and it's been, you know, 15, oh gosh, I, 18 years since I've been in his youth ministry, but we still try to talk once a quarter. Mm. And I said, I don't know what to do. I'm so scared. Like, I'm going to lose everything. I love my job. I was the breadwinner for my family, David. At that time, I was making double what my husband was making mm. in the system I was in. Yeah. And so I was just like, oh my gosh. I, I had just adopted a kid. I And then I had, <laughs> I had a six-week-old baby. So it was just the worst. It was the worst, worst situation possible. 
And he said, we need to do something about this. He didn't say you need to do something about this. Mm. This, this mentor of mine who had walked with me through every life decision, every job choice, you know, every guy I dated walked with me through all of this. He said, we're going to do something about this. He included himself in the solution. So there are good men. And I think, you know, we think of like, oh my gosh, all men are abusing their power. It's probably like less than 10% of men are this douchey. And so (laughs) it takes all of us partnering with good men and men who are willing to see themselves as allies and A, give up power, which I know that's like, are you kidding me? How dare you ask me to include women in my inner circle or give women opportunities that were maybe handed my way and consider other women for that opportunity or job. And not just this token, I'm for women, but really in practice, mm. um, it's going to take, it's going to take a, a radical shift, but it can be done. Yeah. 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 Well, just as you mentioned there, you, you explore the dynamic of race and class and how it complicates issues of sexual assault. If, if you don't mind me quoting here, some, some, some stuff. Oh, go for it. You're reminding me what I wrote a year and a half ago. It's great. I love it. <laughs> no, well, it's just helpful. I, I, I mean, yeah, no, I make your, I'll make your job easier. I'll help you. Uh, <laughs> no. So black women are three times as likely as white women to experience sexual harassment at work. That's staggering three times. Mm-hmm. Indigenous women are two, two and a half times more likely to experience sexual assault and rape than any other ethnic group. And undocumented immigrant low-wage earning women tend to be placed in situations of greater vulnerability. This blew me away. You start by saying, when Donald Trump took office, reports of rape in Los Angeles by Latina women decreased by 25% from January to March 2017. And at first I thought, like, wow, good for him. That's surprising. Like... Never thought I'd have a good good thing to say about him. But then you go on to say that the Los Angeles Police Department attributes this sharp drop in reports to a legit, legitimate fear of deportation. And it's not that it's yeah. no longer happening. It's because it wasn't being reported as much. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. And and how my 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 heart cracked into when during my research process, I discovered that hmm. these women who previously felt like there was someone to call when they were in trouble, they lost their lifeline. Hmm. Because if they were to call and they were to get deported, they could likely be separated from their kids. They could likely lose their, their jobs, their home, everything that they had come to hold and trying to make a life for themselves. And I know that immigration is a very nuanced topic and, and, that's for an expert on immigration and you to have that conversation with. I am an immigrant, so I, please know that there's tenderness there from me. Yeah. But but just to this idea that they lost their only lifeline, yeah. that it broke me. It broke me. It broke me. And the way that employers exploit that, as you mentioned, women who are undocumented, especially if they're working in agriculture, they're often told, unless you allow me to do X, Y, and Z to you, I'll call ICE you know, while they're trying to work, while they're trying to earn money to buy their kids shoes, they're thinking, okay, this is the cost of what it takes to be here in this American dream to live and take care of my family. It is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Yeah. 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 You also point out how privileged white women largely shape this discussion, which as you mentioned, you celebrate and you're thankful for, but you make the comparison between allegations from White women in Weinstein's case and our, and another famous case, R. Kelly's case. Could you speak to that example? Yeah, and I I am I just want to again, and you you mentioned that disclaimer. Thank you for saying that. I do just want to say how grateful I am for Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow and 
women of means and resource to speak up. And I am so grateful that they are celebrated. But I also believe that McDonald's workers need to be celebrated when they're speaking up against managers harassing and assaulting them or, or you know, the women that we just mentioned. And so you take these two cases, Weinstein, Weinstein and, and you take R. Kelly. R. Kelly had, there was documented evidence that he was exploiting. Also, these girls were underage. Most of, of Harvey's cases weren't underage. So this is this is now an FBI case, not just a yeah. not just a he said she said. We're talking about children, and he had been freed of all accusations, claims, lawsuits had been dropped, and we're talking everybody from marketing directors to music execs, all the way down to people running craft services on his video shoots, had knowledge of his abuse of power at these young girls' expense. And he was still getting a free pass. And so when those women really banded together and they raised their voice and Lifetime, a a channel known for original saucy movies, runs a a program on him that over, I believe over 24 million people watch. That was when, once there was like an expose on Lifetime, we're not talking CNN, BBC, nothing. We're talking Lifetime. I mean- if that isn't the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard in all your days, I don't know what is. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, but but the the response was praise for these white women and uh, condemnation for these girls who came forward as hurting somebody in their own community and somebody who was so integral to pop culture. And that's not okay. So not only by their community, but also by others who were saying, she's lying. You can't believe her. She was so young. She just wants the spotlight or a minute of fame. So. The way culture, the justice system, other celebrities, the way they process those two shows such bias Mm. towards women of color and black women specifically when they are speaking up against misconduct. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. And then it takes, you know, somebody like Gail King, a total badass to like stand up, you know, and have that interview. I mean, that, gosh. It's just, it's, it's in such pose. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, and honestly, like what's heartbreaking about it is, you know, you think of, I just honestly, I bring it back to like my faith, like in a lot of these issues, they, they exist in our faith, which we've talked about, but it's like, when you think about, you know, who Jesus cared about most, it was the most vulnerable. It was the, it was the most weak, the, the least resourced, not weak, but you know what I mean? Like the people who weren't of means, you know, the people who, you yeah. know, and you, and you, and you make this juxtaposition between Weinstein's victims and they are victims and, but they're like paraded as heroes. And you compare that to, uh, these women, it's just heartbreaking. And you, like you said, you, there's yeah. well, it's well-documented. People know this is not a secret. Like, it's just insane how we could get here. But really, I think it, Tiffany, what this leads me to next is just, why do you think we have such a difficult time believing women? It's like a, it's like in a horror movie. Like for me, like the scariest part is that nobody believes you when there's like a, a werewolf or a zombie coming. It's like, it's like, you know, it, it like you can see as the observer, it's like, just believe her, you know, like, why do you think, why do you think that we have such a tough time with that? Yeah. Historically in the judicial system, we have created laws that, that punish women or they have to prove that they didn't want it. I mean, I, I, toward the end of the book, I talk about a young girl who came forward to speak up against her employer who, who previously was a a slave owner 
And while her little brothers and sisters watched, he took advantage of her body. And she's, and she's speaking up in this, in this court case. And this is, you know, 150 years ago. And, and the, the judge says, you have to prove that you didn't like it. Gosh. I mean, so when you, when you look at history, the precedent has been set that women wanted this. How can we believe women if we believe subconsciously that they wanted it, Mm. which is why we must internally understand the contextual environment of how this happens to women and not assign blame to the victim, but reassign that blame to a perpetrator. And then I think also one of the reasons we struggle to believe women is because the men of means who are trying to defend themselves are masters of manipulation, masters at engaging and inviting public applause, public compassion when they don't deserve it. I mean, and you, you just gave the perfect example with Esther Houston commenting on that Instagram post. That's a, that's a great example of that is we are so, we're so quick to forgive. We want to believe that men are good. And I think another reason we don't believe women is because we want multiple women to come forward before we'll believe one woman. We want, we want so much evidence. She is guilty of, of, of asking for it until proven innocent. Yeah. And men are innocent until proven guilty. So we have assigned different processes to men and women when they come to the forefront with troubling news. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, imagine, I don't know why, but for me, it makes it, it makes it more real when you talk about like, like if this was happening to your sister, like I have a sister, if I found out that my sister was being abused, I would have no trouble believing her. She's my sister. I love her. Right. Right. And I'm, and I'm very protective. I'm an older brother. (laughs) I'm going to kick some ass. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, But uh, I think what you just described there with like, the insurmountable amount of not just evidence, but like you need, you need multiple, like how many are we talking? You need 10, 20, 30, like we need a Bill Cosby situation, Mm -hmm. like over, like that's how much we need to like come to justice. Like, I think it's, it's ridiculous. And I see it in myself even because I mean, I've, you know, I've heard the argument before from people like Joe Rogan, who, you know, I know people have their opinions about, but he, he said, well, some women lie, they make things up. (laughs) So like, like I can even think of an example. One example, Aziz Ansari, in his most recent comedy right? comedy yeah. special, he essentially addressed allegations that came his way that, you know, according to him, weren't true. And then how grateful he was that he didn't get canceled. Like, what do we do with men who, for all we know, could be tr- telling the truth? I mean, what would you say to an argument like, "Well, some women lie; they make things up"? Like, what do we do with that? Yeah. So research shows that it's less than one percent of women are coming to the table with false allegations mm. because if they're coming to the table with false allegations, they, they already have so much to lose by telling the actual truth, yeah. let alone if it's found to be unfounded allegations. And so you, you do see there's especially cases on college campuses where men have been proven innocent and women have come for them. The, the honest truth is David, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. There are going to be, those 1% of cases where women come forward with false allegations. But what about the 99%? You know, I think even just the idea that we would camp on this 1%, just using your Joe Rogan example, it's like, what the hell, man? Like, let's look at the 99% 
of women who are being exploited and their lives are being destroyed. And some of them are even taking their own life after this situation because it is so incredibly damaging to their mind, body, soul. Mm. So I think I think sometimes we're asking the wrong question, but I also think we have to look at research, which shows when you really do, when, when there are investigations, it's less than 1% are found to be untrue. Yeah. And then I also want to add to that, you know, let's bring up the end. What, what a good example, by the way, the uh, NZ Zanzari. I, I'm master of none. I loved it. A huge fan of him and Parks and Rec, obviously. He's yeah. like the best <laughs> character ever. Totally. Love him so much. Um, but it, even when you look at all the reports and how that played out, there was a clear misunderstanding of consent. So I'm not saying he he assaulted this woman that came forward, but I am saying that we also need to teach our young boys, our teenage boys, our young adults, our grown men who walk in the streets, what consent looks like. Women, again, we're taught to be nice. That's one of the first things we talked about when we started this conversation. Mm. We are so taught to be nice at the risk of offending people. We, we're told to hug uncle. I was about to say uncle Carl, but that's a bad example now. We're told to hold, you know, give a hug to uncle Frank. Mm. So at, at such a young age, we are told to be nice at our own expense of comfort. And so then you move that to an, a, an adult woman who went on a date with a famous dude and then she's back at his place and she's saying, Hey man, I'm tired. That's saying no. Or, Hey man, I think I should get going. Or, Hey, I, I probably need to go. Or, Oh my, I, I, you know, I have to get up early for work. That's our no, like being able. And, and yes, of course it's great when, when there's a firm no, but no can look a lot of different ways. And so I think that there is also a conversation here around consent that is so necessary to have, which I don't, I don't address a ton of the book. There are books that are coming out that I highly recommend that are addressing it. Sexless, sexless in the city by Kat Harris is one of them, but understanding that our desire to be seen as diplomatic and agreeable as women we even when our back is up against the wall, literally and figuratively, mm. we are still trying to uphold a sense of dignity and appearance that would not lead us to look like we are hussies or that we've given something away or that we're also putting ourselves in harm's way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and with that knowledge, Tiffany, of knowing this is how women feel, they feel like they have to be they can't be disagreeable. They have to, like you said, just yeah. s- suck it up. Just if you feel uncomfortable, like just who get over it. Like that's, we, we should know that we should take that as men and realize like the onus of responsibility is not on women to ultimately, cause that's, I, cause I get it. Like, Avoid abuse. Yeah. like there's, that's just like basic social stuff that like, you know, it can make, it can make the woman's come across as like unfavorably or whatever. And so like, and you, like you said, like the 1% that do lie or whatever, it's like, why are we even talking about that? It's like, and the women who are absolutely telling the truth and they are in the horror movie and we need to believe them. The freaking werewolf monster is around the corner. Um, he's getting away with it. Like they have so much on the line just to reiterate what you're saying. Like yeah. they've, they've worked so hard. They had, like you said, in your case, like you had, I mean, <laughs> you're the breadwinner in your family. You're not just like, burning down the house for no reason like oh oh gosh no yeah i also um going back to you i love that you brought up birth order for you and your sister i think that there there's something to that i'm the youngest um i have two older brothers Mm. and i'm I'm my my next oldest sibling he's six years older than me and i was one of the youngest hires where i the system i was in and uh, i'm i can tell you right now david i am the last person on earth they thought would (laughs) Mm. would uh 
would tell the truth and and expose what was going on. They they were banking on my complicity. They were banking on my silence due to fear mongering. I yeah. So it just goes to show like the people who do come forward, w- women count the cost. Yeah. We don't just run our mouths. We count the cost, especially if our paycheck's on the line. We got to feed our babies. We got to pay them bills. We we we're trying to advance in our career. We're trying to just get by. Yeah. And we we want to honor the gatekeeper who let us in, but if that gatekeeper is the very person exploiting our loyalty, then we are up a creek. Yeah. Yeah, so this idea of protecting women, protecting survivors. You talk about allyship. Like how do we go about that? How do we yes. How do we serve as an ally to women who've been silenced? What are some practical things we can do? Absolutely. Well, before I share that, forgive the alliteration, but I hope it helps y'all remember, listeners, because I really do believe that it is a step in the right direction. First, we must lament. When somebody comes to us with even a slight microaggression all the way to, hey, this person took advantage of me, our job is not to question. It is to lament. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I am so sorry. Consider your body language. Consider your tone. Consider your facial expression. Consider your proximity, how far your body is to their body. Lament. Lament in that moment. Show love by lament. Overcome that something could even possibly remotely happen. We're going to get to the truth of it, but to lament in that moment is reminding somebody that they're not alone. Nobody wants to feel alone and when they already feel like their world is in jeopardy. I think after we lament, we listen. We listen for the details. Again, this isn't time to ask questions. We just listen. We listen to every detail. We listen to how it's going. We listen with our, our heart. We listen with our eyes. We listen with our ears. We listen with our body. And then I think we we truly must learn. Learn of the context and learn. I mean, read, pray, tell. Read all of these books that are out there. Read, read research arguments that share that, you know, when a woman's brain is spotty about details, that's not saying that she's lying. That's actually evidence of trauma. You know, finding out all of these things that, really point and give context to learn how this happens because it we'd love to think this only happens in Hollywood or in politics or at mega churches but mm, let me tell you it's gonna happen it's going to happen in whatever system if it hasn't already happened I can guarantee you it's gonna happen in some way shape or form in your world so we have to learn how this happens and how we can stop it and then I think last we love and David love looks like justice. Love not only looks like lending our strength and our time. If that person is going to HR, say, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be with you. If that person has to go to court, we go to court with them. If that person needs a statement, we make the statement. If that person needs numbers to call, we look up the numbers. When they're emotionally drained, we can get our wits about us and be like, hey, I'm going to walk, I'm going to walk this out with you. If they have to report to, to lawyers, offer to sit in the waiting room. Like There's so many ways that we can pursue justice. If somebody needs to call the police and they're scared to do it, we can call the police. So I think that love is very practical. You know, I, I, I harp on the Samaritan woman, excuse me, not the Samaritan woman, the good Samaritan. And the idea that this man gave up his time to pick up this, this man on the side of the road, he gave up his own money. He gave up uh, his reputation. He did not care that he was from a different part of town or not in his religious establishment, this idea that he would give of himself without anything in return, knowing that he could have had something to lose his reputation, most likely, but he was willing to go forward. And I think, especially if this is happening in your workplace, or you're noticing that it's just the boys club at, at work, bystander intervention is very simple. And I think 
again, like Jesus and the adulterous woman is such a great example of this in bystander intervention, which the military has really, really been intentionally activating because there's so much sexual harassment and assault in the military toward women, especially lower ranked women is this. We, if we see something, we put ourselves physically between the person who's making comments to the person at the water cooler, you know, to the woman at the water cooler. And then secondly, if there, if it's appropriate, we go to the abuser of power or whoever said the nasty thing. And we say like, Hey man, did you know how that came across? Mm -hmm. Like totally in a diffused manner before it's like an HR write-up and people's pay is being affected, you know, like give that person the benefit of the doubt at the beginning, the very beginning, not when they have a proven history of playing women at work, you know, but, but going to like, Hey man, do you see how that came across? And then approaching the woman, Hey, is, are you okay? Is there anything you need? I, I noticed this. Did you see that? Did that sit well with you? I think before things blow up, there's these tiny, small, everyday things that could diffuse. I, th I think of a time when I noticed a friend who I sensed that a superior was making her feel uncomfortable just by her body language and the way she was grabbing the doorknob behind her. And I just <laughs> awkwardly went up like, hey, I'm just walking down to get a coffee. Did you want to go grab a coffee? Instantly, like getting her out of that situation, putting myself between her and that person. So I just think we act like it's this huge thing to, to stand up for women. And really, it can look as simple as, hey, do you want to go get a coffee? And putting yourself between an abuser of power and a woman. Yeah. Gosh. Well, <clears throat> Tiffany, what you're describing in this book, I've seen women with twice the talent receiving oftentimes half the opportunity. <laughs> it's not right. Um, there's a lot on the line. You say how hard they've worked to be heard, how diligently they, they have labored to be taken seriously. There's so much on the line. Why, why else would they speak up? And uh, we need to be aware of biases. You're right. We need to listen. Yeah. We need to believe women when the worst imaginable thing has happened. And I just, I really appreciate you coming on. It's, it's, we've given, you've given me and, and our listeners a lot to think about. So uh, thank you for coming on. But before we wrap up, where can we go to learn more about you and where can we go to buy the book? You got it. So you can learn about me at Tiffany Bloom, B-L-U-H-M.com. And there's all kinds of goodies with the book. If you pre-order, you get access to a virtual summit with leading voices on this issue. Um, you can read the first chapter for freezy. There's a great book club discussion guide, all kinds of great stuff on my site. Learn a little bit more about me here, keynotes, all that good stuff. And I hang out mostly on Instagram, Tiffany Bloom. And you can buy the book wherever books are sold. And all links to retailers, again, are on my site. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Tiffany. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thanks for having me, David. All right. There you have it, my friends. Thanks so much for tuning in to yet another episode of Refreshingly Honest Christian. It's a pleasure being with you. I have to say, I really enjoyed this conversation with Tiffany. She's such a, a joy and I love her perspective. A lot of research, a lot of, if you dig into this book, which I encourage you to check out, it's there it's backed up with data it's not just feelings and because obviously this is a, a touchy subject but i mean she she did a really wonderful job so i'd definitely encourage you to check it out uh, wherever books are sold amazon you can check out her site like she said tiffanybloom.com and pick up the book pray tell 
why we silence women who tell the truth and how everyone can speak up. So hope you got something out of this conversation. As we always say, we want to make this a conversation. So please engage with us. You can email us if you like. Tell us what you got from this episode. Refreshinglyhonestchristian at gmail.com. Currently, we're actually taking a break from social media, just so you know. And uh, right now, we're just focusing in uh, on our Patreon. So if you want to engage that way, go check it out. And uh, we're making this more of a a conversation that way. So check it out. Uh, We're hosting discussion groups around topics like what you heard in today's episode. Patreon.com slash Refreshingly Honest Christian. Also, you can sign up for our mailing list. That's just one way we're keeping in contact with you our listeners so go to refreshinglyhonestchristian.com and a pop-up will appear on the site and you can just opt in that way and we'll send a weekly email don't worry we won't spam you and uh you can keep posted that so that's just one way to to keep in touch but yeah right now we're just taking a break from social media because we want to focus in more on the show make this conversation these episodes even better i just noticed for me Social media, not that it's bad or evil. It's just been a little bit of a distraction lately. And uh, I just want to keep my eyes on my own paper, as I've heard Bob Goff say. So I think this will be good for me. I've already been taking about a week off. And you know what they say. Uh, how do you know if somebody's gonna, if somebody's taking a break from social media? Don't worry. They'll tell you. So <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm telling you. And, uh, yeah, so we're going to take a break from Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all that. You can still follow us. Uh, we'll be back. But uh, we're just taking a little break. I'm actually focusing in on a couple different projects of my own. And so, yeah, we just want to make this podcast even better than it already is. So all that to say, if you haven't already, please leave us a review. And if you don't already, subscribe to the podcast. It really means a lot. And if you leave us a review, we will read it out onto the air. So that's just one thing you could do for us and show your support for the show. And so that's it, my friends. That's all I've got for you today. Thanks for tuning in. And until next week, we will see you then. All right. Bye.